Uh, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Ben Cohen. Ben writes the Science of Success column for the Wall Street Journal. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so three topics I was hoping we, we could cover today, actually made kind of three, three and a half. Uh, one is I was really struck by the piece you wrote the other day uh, about Zuckerberg and the metaverse and kind of the bet that he's making. And that's when I said to Hugo, can we get this guy on? Um, and I said, yes, it's not hard. Yeah, it's very easy. There we yeah. go. Uh, two, just your thoughts on Sam Bankman Freed. Three, uh, just given the book you wrote a little bit on, on streaks. And then it also turns out that you lived on the block of PT Nate where we're recording from. So we're going to have to at least ask a little bit uh, about that uh, as well. Um, but let's, let's start with the main thing, which is Zuckerberg. So why does he. I think your average listener would still say Facebook, in their mind, is this really successful company, billions of users, he's one of the richest people in the world, and yet it seems like he feels like he's under existential threat and has to dramatically change his business. How does he perceive the threat? And well, it's interesting, I mean, because this bet that he is making on the metaverse, which is which is what I wrote about and which I think is probably one of the more fascinating bets, and I think you could argue, given like the, what is at stake and the stature of the company and, and him as an entrepreneur, yeah. that it's like one of the most substantial, riskiest bets in corporate history, right? Yeah. I just can't imagine, given how much that company was worth, that like any sudden pivot in strategy can be worth as much as what they are trying to do. And so... I think there are like a, a bunch of forces and factors that go into that decision. One is obviously the, the the dispute that they have with Apple on ad tracking that has bruised their advertising revenue. I think what the company would say is that they're still doing fine and they're still generating you know gajillions of dollars. Um, but you know I think they're looking into a universe where that might change. There is the heightened competition with TikTok, especially right. And mm -hmm. for a very long time, Facebook was. Uh, the app of choice on phones, and then it became Instagram. And now, like I think, if you were to ask anyone who walked by on the street what app they use the most, it is TikTok probably, and not Instagram, and certainly not Facebook. Um, and uh, and you know, I don't know if this is a chicken or an egg thing, but the stock price is in the toilet, right? It is totally tanked. And so, what really drove me to write this piece was that I'd read so many pieces. Including by including by like you know my fantastic colleagues at the journal who cover Meta and Facebook and have broken some of the biggest stories on that beat <laughs> over the last few years. <laughs> yeah, and like who know the company like better yeah. than anyone, and certainly better than me. But um, you know, in some ways, I'm like a useful idiot on this beat when I'm looking around for success and failure. And you know, I'd always seen okay, they're 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 down, their stock price is down seventy five percent, they're doing all this crazy stuff. I mean, they lost $800 billion in market cap. And to me, that number was just so striking and astounding to think that like a, a company that is uh, uh, built in a college dorm room can become so big that it loses $800 billion and it is not even remotely close to the biggest, craziest story in tech as Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Like that, it's almost worth like a step back. Like how did that happen? And just putting that number $800 billion in market cap sounds so much more dramatic and stark and significant than its stock price is down 75% from its high. Right. So you mentioned you know, a few reasons why. Obviously, Apple put in some ad tracking policies and some privacy policies that create some guardrails. Um, TikTok has become more popular and kind of Facebook's usual strategy of just sort of buying up whoever the, the, the potential competitor might be now is going to have a lot more trouble because at the FTC. But all that amounts to an $800 billion less valuable company? Well, I mean, <laughs> th that maybe that was the chicken part. The egg part is that they are sinking incredible resources into this metaverse play that 
Zuckerberg has kind of described in existential terms that he wants the company. I mean, he changed the name of the company, right? Yeah. Crazy. Like, it's just sort of an, an astonishing bet that he made. And it is not paying off so far. And while he changed the name of the company, given like his ironclad control of um, voting shares that allow him to basically do whatever he wants, he's like closer to a king than he is a CEO at this point. Um, he said, like, we are not sure if this investment is going to pay off or be profitable for like five, 10 years. I mean, can you like can you imagine anyone else on earth saying that who was running a public company? I mean, the market freaked out well, when actually, he, ironically, what you do see is a lot of you know as, as an early stage VC um, when these companies go public, oftentimes the S one will be like, yeah, we're not sure if we're ever going to make any right. money. Yeah, but it was yeah. it was it was an interesting contrast um, to be writing and thinking about Meta last week and over the past few weeks as Elon was taking Twitter private because yep. it, it was as if he were doing that for the exact reason, for, like. He, to, to avoid scrutiny from the public markets, right? And Zuck essentially is almost running a private company right. publicly, right? Because yeah, he can, because he control. can do that. He can do whatever he wants. And so um, I think that when they say that um, that that Reality Labs, the Metaverse division, has lost three point seven billion dollars in operating revenue, and that they expect the losses to grow significantly next year, it, you start to think, well, where is the end game? Because you know, I haven't used the metaverse. I, I imagine you probably haven't either. I mean, Not, I mean, we've used we VR bought we bought we bought the goggles. Yeah, we, we do have, have the we goggles. We haven't used but, them yet. Yeah, but no, I mean, I don't, I don't know that the metaverse is we think what it, we think it's supposed to be exists. Right, and so um, and they are responsible for building it, but it's also not clear that like there is a demand for it. Right, they are supplying something that we don't know. Right. Now, he, I guess, would say, well, there was no demand for social media either until I invented it, so... And he is totally right about that. And, like, one of the reasons why I think it, it is an interesting bet is because, like, you know, it seems like a failure now, but it is not necessarily bound for failure. I mean, when he when he changed Facebook and reoriented it for, fa for, for mobile when he did, it was a brilliant play, right? And he has done this several times. I mean, he, he bought Instagram for a billion dollars. He bought what... I mean, um, so many of the moves that he has executed have worked out so well for him that in some ways he deserves the benefit of the doubt. Um, but what you're seeing here is like, you know, at what point does it become hubris? And what point, right. like when, when not even Meta's own employees are using their Metaverse products, you start to wonder, well, why should I? Right. So what is, as you understand it, what's his vision? What, if, if everything went right, what would happen? That I, I think that um, it would be something along the lines of, the metaverse and not social media or the or the mobile web as we have come to understand it is where all of this is going and by moving fast and being first facebook is in position to reap the greatest benefits from that got it. and it meta sorry not right, facebook meta, right and, and to him do you think so look, obviously he cares about money everyone anyone who ever says they don't care about money is lying but he may say there's no functional difference in my life whether i have $5 billion or $500 billion, so I'm just going to do the stuff I want to do. Um, do you think he just sees it as like, you know, I'm the only one that can basically afford to both invest these resources and take this risk, and what I really want to accomplish isn't just a question of not being, you know, the next General Electric or whatever it is, but I want to create this new thing that changes the entire world again. So. In terms of like his personality and psychological motivations, I would actually be curious what you think about that because you probably know guys like this much better than I do. I think in terms of using his resources, he has said on the record that like he thinks it is incumbent on companies with Meta's resources and power to, to use what they have to take big shots. He wants mm -hmm. to go down, whether it's, sorry, he wants to take big swings. Yeah. Whether, it's, whether he's going down swinging, who knows? But he thinks that like, 
given the resources they have and the advantages they have and the leverage they have in a lot of ways, and given um, all of those things that he personally has, given his voting power, that like it would be irresponsible to not do something like this, which is you know certainly refreshing and interesting when you think about people who become risk averse and cautious. Yeah, I mean, look, he's, I mean, same thing arguably with with Bezos and Musk on on space, right? Which is NASA was pretty stalled, and the, now look, might they make a lot of money on it? Sure, might Zuckerberg make a lot of money on the metaverse? Sure, um, but either way, they're, they're they're making a pretty big bet to try to bring the future about. Do you think any of this is because he looks at Facebook, sees the havoc and kind of negative that it has sort of brought upon society and says, this is my chance to fix both the underlying situation and my own legacy? Or do you think he thinks Facebook's the greatest thing that ever happened to the world and we just need to make it even bigger through the metaverse? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I would be curious if he uses Facebook the way that he used to, right? I mean, I certainly don't. I mean, very few people that I know do. And I just wonder if like, if what world he is in, it's such a strange um, existence that he inhabits. There's also, as you point out, like the discourse about Facebook and Meta is not particularly positive. And I always think back um, to what Don Draper said on Mad Men, right? If you don't like what they're saying, you change the conversation. And I don't know. I don't know if he likes what anyone's saying any better now, but um, I think the conversation has certainly changed. Yeah, and arguably, if you were just to look at the path they were going on, um, it's hard to, you could see why a very bearish case could then push him to the conclusion, I've got to try something else, right? Right. Is it a question of managed decline or do you want to take a big swing and, and, and right. try to, uh, you know, alter your trajectory as right. a Right. Fa- Facebook usage is definitely down. And my kids who are 16 and 13 would say they don't even really like Instagram, right? They, you know, they like, you know, they'll, they'll go if TikTok to them as the mainstream. Right. And then they're on like Be Real and all these like even more alternative uh, platforms, right? And, and Zuckerberg doesn't have any avenue to acquire any rival that is coming up, right? I mean, yeah. there's a world 10 years ago in which he goes and pays a couple of billion dollars for Be Real, but like, you know, if we're being real here, that's never going to happen. No, and he's got not only, it's interesting, because he's got the existing regulatory overhang, which is one thing that he has done brilliant I'm being sarcastic over brilliantly is he has united the two parties uh, against him in a way that's really remarkably yeah, rare. I used, I used to write about sports for the journal and I mean I think one of the few areas of um, political consensus is hating on the NCAA and also you know big tech these days. Yeah exactly so um, even without because I mean the U.S. basically has still never regulated Facebook at all right we don't have a, a, a privacy framework we our antitrust laws are pretty weak um, we don't you know section 230 kind of completely completely protects Facebook from any sort of legal liability on, on content. And yet just the dislike for Facebook is enough that um, they know the FTC would sort of automatically oppose any sort of murder that they tried to do. I still think we're going to see things like Section 230 eventually be, if not repealed, change meaningfully. And then all of a sudden, the business model changes even more in a negative way because right now, sure, you know, you might say oh, we don't want we don't we don't we don't want our platform to be toxic. But if negative content drives more clicks than positive, and clicks drive advertising rates, and that's the only sort of metric for success, at the end of the day, you want as much negative and toxic content as you can get. If you start being legally responsible for it, and all of a sudden you're paying out, you know, five, ten billion dollar judgments, not unlike say what happened with tobacco then all of a sudden, you know, your business model changes. So, I mean, they're struggling even before any regulations would actually make it even harder, right? Um, so from that perspective, it, it kind of makes sense that he would do this. So who's most likely 
to successfully challenge him of the other big tech companies. In, in, in terms of what? In terms of, of actually trying to build some version of the metaverse. Well, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, I think I think Microsoft was there um, and obviously like Activision Blizzard. I mean, th there yeah. are a lot of it also like sort of depends on how we are defining the metaverse, which I'm still not entirely clear on. And if if I'm not a sort of just like a digitally savvy, but not like insane. So give me your tech. give me your it's in the eye of the beholder. Give I, me your definition. I think the way we described it in the journal was uh, an amorphous, immersive online experience. How does that does that work? That's not bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or, or right, basically. You know, what, what does amorphous mean, though? What does that mean? I think like blobby. Blobby. Yeah, it just but, means it gives them the cover that it could mean anything. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's not a square. Why, it's not a square or a triangle. Was, that, no, that's why it was a clever <laughs> yeah. use of wording. But to me, like yeah. it, it, all all of all of these. Um, Reasons that we've discussed, like incentivize for incentivize them to make a big bet, right? Which is which is why I sort of appreciate what he is doing. The thing I find curious is the way they are going about doing it. Like for them to just wake up, what for them to what feels like they just woke up one day and were like, we are going to pivot and become a metaverse company. We are changing the name of the company from Facebook to Meta. And like the people I talk to, I mean, these are scholars, so they're not like in the real world of like trying to build stuff every day. They told me about this concept called intelligent failure, which is like you are making enough small bets um, that are just big enough and informative to learn from them without like sinking the company, right? And he seems to be essentially betting the company on this very unproven, unpredictable premise. And I think at the very least, it'll be interesting to see what plays out. Um, and I think more than that, I mean, I think there's a chance that like, you know, they are not the company five years from now um, as they were five years ago. Right, right. For, for, for better or for worse, or most likely something in between, you know, to their credit, they are trying to do something really different. And it's also worth yeah. noting, like, they are not the only company that has lost a whole lot of money this year, right? And right. like, Amazon has lost a trillion dollars in market cap. I mean, they were much bigger than Facebook to start with. And, and by percentage, um, Meta Facebook is down more than Google and Amazon, uh, and especially Apple, which is like outperforming the broader market and is one of the few big winners this year. But um, you know, it it is a tough time to be a tech company, right? Right. Now. Which is actually a, a good segue into Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, which is what uh, is the segue? Losing a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the segue is. Uh, Tech trends and companies being wildly overvalued because people don't really understand mm. what it is, and they want to—they don't want to seem stupid, so therefore they just go along with it. So, in the same way that you know, yeah, Amazon's an incredibly valuable company. Facebook is an incredibly valuable company. That doesn't mean it's worth a trillion dollars, right? Tesla certainly is not worth seven hundred million dollars. It's probably worth like a tenth of that in reality. Um, so much of the money that went into FTX specifically and crypto broadly was kind of money-chasing momentum without there being a clear business case as to why any of these investments were actually going to really pay off. Um, what's your take on Sam Bankman-Fried? Have you met him? How are you analyzing this whole thing? I have not met him. We traded emails a few months ago because I was thinking about writing a column um, about him. Um, and I, I have been fascinated by him for, for a few months now. I mean, like I think anyone who sort of came across his story and saw what FTX was worth and, and what he was worth individually, yeah. um, it was sort of staggering and astonishing. And I still don't really understand what happened over the last week. <laughs> yeah. um, I, like, I don't know how it unraveled so quickly. I can't 
tell how much of it was real, whether it was like one bad decision that backfired, whether this was a systemic risk or what's gonna happen next. However, um, I think there is um, sort of a lot to be learned about the way that um, that he blew up and then the way that everything blew up. And you know, to me, he um, represents sort of an interesting archetype as a young, ambitious person who, for um, you know, for, for for decades before this, would have found a place on Wall Street or Silicon mm-hmm. Valley and spent their entire lives and careers there. He grew up in Silicon Valley. He you know came of age on Wall Street, trading at Jane Street, and he was part of this gold rush and crypto people who were at the right time of their careers that yeah. they could afford to speculate and had like voracious appetites for risk. And I think. Risk specifically is like what someone like SBF prided himself on. He was a trader fundamentally, right? And um, specifically his vision of risk as like, I am trying to make a whole lot of money, not because I want a whole lot of money, but because I want to give it all away, right? And people actually believed it when he said that. Right. And if your goal is to maximize profit so you can do the maximum good and you are going to um, gobble up as much risk as you can get and be proud of the way you manage risk, which, you know, I've been listening to his old podcast and, like, watching um, interviews that he's done. And, like, just over and over, he talks about, like, the thing that makes FTX what it is at the time. Um, now, what it was is was the way that they managed risk. And, like, that was the innovation that they had over other crypto exchanges. Um, they were, like, safe and trustworthy. And, like, they were very cognizant of, like, all the risk at play. And it turns out trying to do good turned out very, very bad, and, and the risk backfired. In fact, I was watching just this morning, so I was thinking about writing a column. Um, he uh, uh, appeared in front of Congress last year for some hearing on digital currencies. Yep. Probably will not be um, the last time uh, he appeared in front of Congress. I think he might be in a different circumstance. Yeah, yeah. but, but he, um, uh, he, he he's sort of gloating about this risk engine that FTX has built. And... <laughs> In another interview he gave, they asked him what was the first thing that FTX did a hundred times better than any company in the world. It's one of those like you know leadership podcasts. And literally, the first two words out of his mouth are "manage risk." So these, this is like what he thought of himself, and he, he he draws a contrast in this congressional hearing between the way that FTX and crypto platforms manage risk and the way that um, Wall Street banks managed risk when they blew up in two thousand eight. And he said nobody knew how much risk was in that system until it all fell apart. And watching it this morning, I mean, those words just read very differently. Right. So, I mean, it's managing risk within still maybe arguably something that where risk couldn't really be managed, right? So there's some percentage of people who genuinely don't trust central banks. They don't trust central governments. They prefer to see their money. Which is not him, for the record. No. And by the way, that's legitimate to me in the sense that, okay, fine. I accept that that's a a fair point of view. And if you want to put your money into Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever it is because you don't trust the dollar or you don't trust... Jerome Powell, fine, but that's like less than 1% of people that actually have been trading crypto, right? And then the rest of it is it's an asset class based solely on ideology and, and basically momentum, right? So you're, you're managing risk, but you're managing risk of things that have no intrinsic value. But also in the beginning, especially, it was like a hilariously inefficient market. And if you are someone um, like SBF, who is sort of like trained to search for those inefficiencies in the market, and if you were of the age that he was, where you could afford to like 
you know, leave your Wall Street trading firm and go looking for the next big thing, and you spot, you know, um, crypto being sold for a different price in the U.S. as it was in Japan, and you can make a few million dollars in a couple of weeks, like that is just irresistible to sure. you. So I think to him, what made what always made him interesting was that he seemed like sort of this detached presence in the crypto world, where there are so many true believers and like you know um, people who believe in like the messianic underlying principles of crypto, and it almost seemed like he was just like there for the money, right? Which he said he wanted to give away. But like, he, you didn't really hear him espousing like how crypto specifically or blockchain or Web3 was going to save the world, especially like over the past year when that became like this clarion call for the whole industry. Right. So it seems like, so the portrait, whoever was doing his comms or him was really good in the sense that the portrait that until recently was out there was, this guy is different. Um, yes, he's making a lot of money on crypto, and we can have our own views as to, to whether or not that's that's sound. But he was this quirky, benevolent yeah, philosopher right. king he's of crypto. He's going to give right? it all away, and he is. And I would say, like in, in my world, kind of tech regulation, he at least was one of the few people in crypto that seemed to understand like your existential risk is the SEC. And well, and, and I would argue that like about it. I would argue that like he went beyond that, right? I mean, he was probably um, the loudest and most consequential voice in trying to shape crypto regulation. Yeah. I mean, shape it to his advantage. Most but, likely, but at least right? take it, but at least to his credit, he understood that just because you are trading a sovereignless currency doesn't mean that you're not still heavily impacted by the regulation of the country that you're trading it from. Or now, and, and ironically, like devastatingly, that seems to have been part of his demise, right? I mean, it's unclear what specifically prompted um, the sell-off of their token last yeah. week and how that relationship with CZ at Binance fell apart. But, you know, from reading the tea leaves and trying to, like, interpret cryptic tweets, it seems like people at Binance and across crypto were not entirely pleased by how much he wanted the space to be regulated. And whether that, right. you know, caused the divide and like, you know, started this run that essentially bankrupted a $32 billion company in less than a week. I mean, that's, it's it's like an extraordinarily ironic ending. Right. And it's like, it's the type of thing, I mean, you just know there, I mean, the books and the podcast series and the movies and the documentaries, I mean, you know, you're, you can just sort of cast everybody now. Right. But what's interesting is, like, I got a—I'm an investor in a, a small crypto fund, and—not in my fund, just me personally. And um, got an email from, from the GP saying, uh, look, just so everyone here knows, we don't do business with him. We never have done business with him. But then they gave this, like, pretty detailed accounting of their interactions with him— and said, made it sound like we thought he was too sketchy and too unethical. Oh, it's interesting to work with. Um, and I guess the question is, is everything that went down went down because they were cutting all of these different corners? And then once that collapses, especially in a world where there's no intrinsic value to the underlying thing itself, it really collapses. And he was doing all of this politics, sort of knowing that and trying to build up favors and chits and goodwill. Or is he sort of this nice kid who meant well and was in way over his head and couldn't handle any of this? I, I mean, I think that is the central question right now that that nobody really seems to know. I mean, I think we know how Aaron Sorkin's going to answer that question, though. Yeah, I think, we, I think we do. <laughs> that one has written itself. Yes, but it, it you know, it, it's um, that is like I, I think in terms of like timing and motivations and intentions and like how this actually happened, like. Did something change over the last 
two weeks or two months that like triggered this or or you know was it as it's been called like a house of cards the whole time i'm trying to be careful in what i say but like you can sure. sort of say yeah, yeah i've, I've got like, a little more but I think yeah. that we all are like thinking the same thing yeah i think we don't know right there's, there's certainly enough evidence to say that those are those are fair questions to ask and which is worse right <laughs> It's also a really good question. I prefer him to have been the naive kid who meant really well and just got in over his head. Have you listened to interviews that he's done? Have a, you, a few, yeah. He's very smart. He's really smart. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. I actually do believe in effective altruism. And so I'm almost a little bummed because it's like, it's... Do, wait, do you think effective altruism is toast because of this? No, but I, th I think it's a concept that... So, so let, me, from a, let me contrast it in a... What's in, a, in worse shape, EA or crypto? <sighs> Crypto, short term, long. But here's we're going to need, need a listener poll. On let's that. It's compare a very good question. So to, to me. Let's compare. We'll, we'll keep it in the world of finance here. Um, ESG and effective altruism, right? So I don't believe in ESG funds. Um, every time an LP says to me, potential LP, well, will you guys conform to the ESG rules? I say no. In fact, not only that, like if I want to invest in gambling or sex or drugs, I'm going to do so, right? Um, but the main reason I'm not an ESG believer is I feel like it's like the worst of all worlds, right? Which is um, we're only going to try to make double bottom line investments, which really limits the scope of what we can invest in. It, it produces a certain type of founder entrepreneur who's probably not quite as aggressive and all the things you need to really dis disrupt an entire market. Um, and yeah, kind of mediocre returns that kind of produce mediocre things, and a lot of shit is called ESG that that doesn't have. It's all process and bureaucracy. Whereas effective altruism is like, yeah, look, if I can make the most money on OnlyFans or Jewel or whatever it is, now I'm, I'm not investors in those, but like, and then I'm going to donate all of that money to mosquito nets that we know directly save lives with a higher higher ROI than anything else. That actually makes more sense to me, right? I mean, that's how, again, with my fund, one of the ways that I think we do a decent job of recruiting younger associates is, you know, I'm at a point in my life where all the money I make from the fund goes into my foundation, which goes into programs like Childhood Hunger. And so I'm able to say to them, look, I want you to make as much money as possible. I'm not going to restrict generally the way you can make money. And the better you do at it, the more kids you feed because... The, my piece of it goes directly into um, into these these programs that we run. So it's sort of an effective altruism argument. Um, but yeah, he was one of the big spokespeople for it. Look, you know, there there are the the Peter Singers and Will McCaskills of the world, but they're academics. They they live at the mar like you, they don't have any money, right? If <laughs> effective altruism, if it's just a theory taught at Princeton without someone like Sam Bankman Fried putting billions of dollars behind it, it doesn't really mean anything. So I don't know. I'm, well, that bo I'm that bodes poorly it. for EA then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. That, I think you just made the, I thought you were going the other way, but there it is. Yeah, maybe I convinced myself the other way. <laughs> so um, let's talk about streaks. So you wrote this really cool book about kind of what streaks really are and what they're not. I'm mm. sure you're so tired of talking about this, but for the listeners who haven't read the book and this way, hopefully they'll go buy the book. Um, what's your thesis on streaks? Um, so the, the book is called The Hot Hand. It's about the hot hand, um, which is like this um, phenomenon in psychology um, that I think is best understood through sports, uh, but applies to like, you know, every industry on earth, I yeah. think. And the reason I wrote the book, um, 
there, well, there are many reasons, but the reason I wrote the book is because there was this incredible narrative tension where you have this intuitive idea that we all thought to be true, only to be told about 35 years ago that it wasn't, that there's no such thing as the hot hand, right. only to be told a few years ago for like that, that actually it is, and it, or it might be anyway, and that you're not crazy to believe in the hot hand. And so like that, um, uh, like the, the flip-flopping narrative was just sort of irresistible to me, and the, the fact that you could study this idea and understand it through Nobel Prize winners and NBA superstars was like also just totally irresistible to me. So like, and, and also because I think that the reason why um, the hot hand specifically and streaks like generally have um, been such an intoxicating thought for so many people is that not only have we all seen hot hands and streaks, but many of us have felt them in our own lives, right? Whether I think it's, we all yes. have. So right? I think it's a universal phenomenon. And whether or not it exists, or um, better yet, like to what extent it exists, is like a super interesting question. And I think, you know, what makes it especially interesting is that it's different in different industries, right? So it might exist on the basketball court, and it might not exist in like picking stocks or in financial markets, right? Right, right. So like when the, because I, I think if you just talk to everyone passing by on the street and said, are there times in your life where you feel like you're on a hot streak in a cold streak? I think that pretty much 100% of people would say yes, yes. right? In fact, like those studies have been done. Like, you know, what th this first seminal study of the hot hand was in 1985, and part of the study was polling NBA players and basketball fans about whether or not, not only did they believe in the hot hand, but do you behave as if you believe in the hot hand? Which is to say, if you are hot or if somebody on your team is hot, do you get them the ball and do you encourage them to shoot? And it wasn't quite 100%, it was like 91%, but I think that's just polling error. Like, I think, like, you know, I once asked Steph Curry about this, and he said, if there's like somebody who doesn't believe in the hot hand in basketball, I have not yet that per not met that person. Right. Yeah. Oh, right, right. I guess he, in a weird way, he's almost the exception. To, he can have a hot hand within a particular game, but like his skill, his basic skill level is at everyone else at their highest. For sure. Of, but, but that is know. like, it's an interesting distinction because like my hot hand in basketball is like, um, is obviously not Steph Curry's hot hand, but like there is something about um, being on a streak. Your hot hand might, in fact, be his coldest hand, right? Uh, yeah, I mean that's like you know ice age frigid. Ben only right? played in the NBA for like half a season. Exactly. <laughs> Give yeah. him a break. Yeah. I was on a ten day a few years ago, <laughs> yeah. but um, uh, uh, but in terms of like you know streaks and performance, you are outperforming your own expectations, right? So right. you are a superhuman version of yourself, and like so for me that really means nothing. It's like the hottest I ever was in a basketball court was when I was a sophomore in high school in a JV basketball game in which there were like six people in the stands and I made a few shots in a row and I could tell you everything about that. You still season. remember it? Totally. Very fondly. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first five pages of the book about it, right? For Steph Curry's the hottest he ever was, you know, I argue in the book was this game um, that they played a few blocks away in Madison Square Garden in, in 2013 when he scored 54 points, he made more three-pointers than anybody had ever made in the history of the NBA. And that was the game that changed his life and it changed the fate of the Golden State Warriors. And in many ways, it changed the future of the NBA. Like that was um, a, a breaking point in an entire sport that would change everything about the way the game is played around the world. And so you have this one where like one person remembers it a couple of years later, and you have this other where it is a revolutionary moment. So when the science came out saying, I don't remember when this happened, like, no, there's no such thing as hot streaks. And I, I think, I, I, I almost thought it was like a Scott Boris thing to just justify A-Rod's contracts. But, um, you know, what what's their argument and how did people react to it? 
Well, they thought they were crazy, right? I mean, that was the reaction. The argument is that um, when you think of um, hot streaks, it is simply a case of seeing patterns in randomness. It is our minds playing tricks on us. And like those cognitive illusions are costly and they are um, persistent and they're everywhere. And, um, you know, um, that paper itself um, was written by um, three psychologists, um, Tom Gilovich, Robert Vallone, and the great Amos Tversky, who was right. Danny Kahneman's collaborator, yeah. was, you know, everyone said was the smartest person they ever met. And so, um, uh, it, you know, it was an incredibly admirable paper because what they were working with at the time was um, data that was not available to current researchers in, like, you know, their nerdiest, wildest, wonkiest dreams. They were working off of the best stuff that they had at the time. And I think that um, it, it, it was an incredibly counterintuitive finding. It was so counterintuitive. It was so unbelievable that like most people just refused to believe it. Right. And when these researchers came along a few years ago, like almost 30 years later, the, the, the ground under their earth had, the, the, the ground under their feet had changed so much that they were like working to overturn this paper that had been accepted as conventional wisdom. So over 30, 35 years, the contrarian thought had become conventional wisdom, which right. is sort of an interesting idea in but itself. But isn't there also this notion where, okay, so like we as investors, and Jordan, my partner Jordan and I, we believe we have hot streaks, right? And we can literally go back into each fund and say, in this three-month period, you know, we did deals that captured 80% of our returns or, or whatever it is. But I would argue that in that three-month stretch when we sort of realize or feel like we're on a hot streak, our performance does improve because our confidence improves and like our demeanor improves. And so that's certainly part of it. I mean, there's there's also the idea that like success begets success. And because you are hot, you can take advantage of resources that are not there for you to begin with, right? And like use your success to elevate to a different place. And, you know, I think what is interesting to me about the hot hand about this phenomenon generally is like how it applies to different industries. There, there are lots of industries where like, you have no control or agency over what you are doing. And that, to me, is the distinction. Like, in a basketball court, um, if you are hot, you can essentially, like, get the ball and you can test your hotness. There are lots of industries that, like, you can be as hot as you want, but um, the control is, like, fundamentally beyond you, right? Like, you do not have agency. And so um, whether investing is one is, like, I, I think that's, like, there, there's a line, right? I mean, can, can someone beat the market? Like, and when you think about, like, how that applies to your daily life, maybe not yours, but mine, it's, like, should I try to, like, pick a certain number of stocks that are going to outperform? Um, or, like, is, is, is it better for me to just put my money in the market and, like, you know, put it in, into an index funds and let that right. go to work? It's a me. great question. I mean, right. I think the, the, the reason why I think for me, at least, venture is different is because it's, and we just do seed in Series A, is I'm going to, I'm going to try to actually build this company. So it's not me just sort of, I have agency because right. I, I literally only invest if I feel like I can have a material impact on the company's future. Right. right? So that's much closer to being on a basketball court than like walking into a casino and, and putting $5 on red at the roulette wheel. Right. So so I'm a fanatical Mets fan and baseball fan. And, uh, and in fact, you sent out a really good article the other day, Hugo, about there, by Derek Thompson about sort of almost how the game has sort of outsmarted itself, right? Like the analytics got so good to the point where they actually made the game pretty boring. Which is an interesting contrast with basketball, right? Because I think that you could argue that that right. analytics and data um, have made baseball worse. And to me, I think basketball is better. Like I think it's more exciting. But that's People like, do um, make that same argument on basketball, though, that the, that the long shot, the lack of the sort of team play and the guys taking three-pointers all the time. I mean, I don't agree with it either, but I think there are people who say that. There are, but it's different from baseball where it's like home run strikeouts and the games are much longer because of it. Like to me, like basketball um, 
it, you know, it wasn't so much a strategy as they were. It, they were just simply lucky that like the most efficient way to play the game happens to be, if not more exciting, as exciting as the way it always was. Right, right. So you are a general manager in baseball. You, you know, are not, you're no longer some guy that played and now you're 53 and you got somehow made your way to the GM and, you know, you're 32 and, you know, came out of business school. Um, you're as analytically minded as it gets. And yet, when you still kind of know that you need players that will step up in the clutch and some guys seem to be more than that than others. So we're in the free agent period, like right, I think started yesterday or something like that. Um, how do you think they think about it where on one hand they kind of rationally believe some things and on the other hand, you know, there's all this at least, you know, sentiment in the other direction. Yeah, to me, um, you know, baseball is such a funny market because like at least in basketball, teams are sort of playing by the same rules, right? I mean, not as much as they are in football where there's like a hard cap. Baseball, like it almost doesn't matter how you value this stuff. Like if you are the Yankees or you're the Mets owned by Steve Cohen, like if you want, if you need to pay a guy $3 million more a year because it's perceived that he's clutch, like who cares? Just go do it. You know, like if, if the difference is like not having that player, um, because of it, like right. you might as well. Although interesting, so let's take the Dodgers as an example. Yeah. Right. Very wealthy franchise, very well run franchise. You know, they use their money to their advantage as they should, but they've only, I think they've won the division like 10 years in a row and they've only won one World Series in that period. So arguably, over the whole of a 168 season, they're making analytical decisions that are clearly right, but they're not getting the hottest most clutch guys because they're not winning in the playoffs or the playoffs are totally random and like you can't take anything away from like well, I mean the famous what the Billy Bean quote from Moneyball it's like you know my shit doesn't work in the playoffs what like yeah. there's there's never been a better way of putting it yeah Bradley yeah. switch to uh, the lower east side because yeah. we uh, have to get out of here in two minutes oh okay um, <laughs> you so we're at 180 Street uh, PNT Network please come buy some books um, and you lived at 188 Orchard Street for a long time and then you lived right around the corner on Houston um, what was the neighborhood like then compared to what you just saw when you came in here today? Well, it's totally different. There, like, not a single storefront is the same, I don't think. I, even the pizza place on the corner used to be used to be Rosario's and is not there anymore. So, like, it's still a pizza place, I think, but it's not the Zazzies, same pizza place. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I think where we're sitting right now is, like, used to be either the French diner or some barbecue place that, that I came to a lot. There's, like, not a single place is different. Uh, not a single place is the same. The whole block is different, um, except for Ross and Daughter. So, like, the oldest place on the block is, like, the only one that is still here, which, thank God for it. I'm going to name five things on our block, and you're going to rank for me, uh, if I if we'd had this conversation 10 years ago when you lived on this block, the what would have surprised you? Yeah, yeah exactly. So Equ the Equinox is probably Right, so Equinox <laughs> would be right. So equinox, <laughs> that's sort of a gimme on the board. Yeah. There's Equinox. There's a podcast studio, right? Yes. There's a sex bakery across the street that, that is... Would, that would probably be the least surprise. That is Bradley's favorite business yeah. on the street, even though he's never been in there. I've never he been did, in there. He loves I, it. I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated by it. Um, a, the top... I, Mr. Purple, I haven't been, but I think it's considered a top club in New York. Um, actually, what we like is one time you and I were recording on a Saturday afternoon... And there was like a big fight on the street while we were recording about around something to do with the club. But it was very velvet exciting. Rope, the velvet rope was yeah. knocked over. Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> right here. It was really cool. Um, ben Cohen, how do people follow you and, and read your stuff? Oh, I, uh, I'm in the Wall Street Journal every week. And I'm uh, BZ Cohen on all of the social media platforms cool. everyone hates. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.